Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode four of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode is number four, and it's all about extensions of time. So this is a bit of a minefield of a topic and it may well need more than one episode to get through in enough detail. But what we're gonna look at today is five things that you really need to do to protect yourself and to successfully land an EOT. So some of what we'll talk about is practical things that you need to do. One, because it makes sense. Two, because it helps you have the right information at the right time when you want to rely on it. And then the things that you need to do under your contract to get the job done. Now I'll start by saying this, a lot of subcontractors out there that I've worked with don't really get on board and engage with the extension of time provisions. And what you've got to think is that you're working for a contractor and contractors, oh it says it on the tin, they contract. They use the contract and all the various elements of it to their benefit. And some of you out there will think that as long as you're maintaining a good relationship with your QS, with your site manager, with the people that you're working for, then none of this really matters. And sometimes that's right, but it isn't always. And what you don't want to do is work on the basis of, oh, I'll get away with it, or oh, I don't need to do that. So-and-so will look after me. Relationships and good relationships are a great thing but you want to use that as a positive and a means to getting things settled rather than something that you're relying on and using as almost a reason not to follow the proper process or the proper procedure. Because really these procedures are there for a reason and following them should never have any detrimental effect on a relationship that you've got with your employer or the contractor or the contractor's QS. So the standard forms of contract have clauses that revolve around notification, assessment, and then the issue of some kind of award. And we'll first talk about notices or the notification requirement. So the point of a notice is really to raise awareness. And this is where the NEC form of contract does something quite well because what it has is an early warning notice. And the JCT doesn't specifically say it's an early warning notice. It says, as soon as the subcontractor is aware of an event which might cause delay, that they should notify the contractor. And you've got to think about this in a collaborative way. What it's really asking you to do here is if you see something which may cause a problem for you, and it may cause you to stop work, take longer, then really it's trying to get you to tell the contractor about it before it becomes an issue. And whilst there's still some kind of opportunity to, if not eradicate the problem altogether, then try and do something to mitigate at least some of the issue. And as much as the JCT isn't necessarily thought of as a collaborative contract, if you follow some of the things such as the notice protocols in the way that I think they're drafted and I think they're intended to be used, it actually can be quite a collaborative process. So simple, for instance, on this. Let's say you're digging the foundations for a building and the next section that you're about to start on 
is a location of a contractor's materials compound and it's going to delay you accessing that section which is ultimately going to stop you pouring the next set of foundations and cause a critical delay to the job. If you were to identify that a month in advance and say, if you're unable to clear this compound within the next four weeks, it's going to start delaying the job, delaying me and prolonging my presence on site. The contractor can actually do something about it and relocate his compound, decant his bricks or whatever to elsewhere and prevent any delay. But then on the flip side to that, you've given him a notice and you've said in plenty of time, hey, I'm going to be delayed if you don't sort this problem out. So when that month has passed, whose fault is it? It can only be the contractor and your entitlement is that much stronger for having identified in advance, notified and made clear and given the opportunity for something to be done about the problem. So you've really got to think about it in those terms. That the contract really is looking for you to have a little bit of forward planning, a bit of foresight about what might hurt you and give notice so that something can be done about it. So that's the sort of reasoning behind the notice protocol, if you like. The next thing we're going to talk about is how to actually issue a notice. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky because you really need to refer back to your subcontract for this. And knowing what some contractors are like with this, where they advise you to submit a notice could be in a couple of different places. But, uh, but what I've found is it would typically be in a set of pre-commencement meeting minutes or stated within a set of contract particulars. And it is really something that you do have to dig out and read because what you'll find is some contractors will require the notice to be issued in writing, which is what the original agreement would have required. But some contractors have looked past that and said, you must now issue notices via email and that they identify a particular email address, a particular person within the subcontract and saying that any official official communication must be to that person and that email address. Now I'm telling you this because these are technicalities, but there are contractors out there who would try and dismiss what is otherwise a valid notice on the grounds of it being served to the wrong person. And you might end up in front of potentially a friendly adjudicator who's sympathetic to your cause and sees, oh look, you've sent plenty of email correspondence on this issue. And those emails may well constitute a notice in their eyes. But what I'm telling you is, why risk it? These things are written down in black and white for you to use, for you to see, for you to read, for you to be aware of, and for you to use. So use it. Use it to your advantage and fire in your notices. And that will put you really on the front foot. You'll be able to use the contractor's program and your own program as a means one, to protect yourself, and two, as a means of opportunity to cover off extra costs for prelims and likes that you'll carry on spending for that prolonged period on site that we're encountering. And typically what you should be having is a situation where you're identifying things on a notice, you're notifying the contractor, and not all of them will result in a delay. But you should be able to fire in these notices as if they were an early warning. Then we get a little bit further down the line 
you can see which ones of those have actually caused you some harm and also look at which ones might be your strongest suit and go back and rely on those with your assessment. Now the notice itself doesn't have to be anything particularly sophisticated. Remembering at this point, all we're trying to do is raise awareness that something may cause delay. So your actual letter can be pretty simple really. It doesn't have to be a lot more than a couple of paragraphs saying, Dear Mr. Contractor, I'm writing to make you aware that this event is happening on the site and we have concern that it's going to either delay our ability to start work on a section on the section or com commencement date or it's going to impact our ability to complete the work as quickly as we have set out to, i.e. you're going to be disrupted. Then you want to just add to that what you think the potential impact of it might be. So this may delay us commencing work on this section and resultantly delay our handover of the same section of work to you, impacting the critical path of the main contract program and our own subcontract program. And you also want to state whether you think it may cause you to incur costs. Now the time and the cost elements under JCT contracts are separate to each other. Whereas under NEC, these are one and the same thing. But for the purpose of what we're looking at here in JCT terminology, the time and the cost are two distinct things and they're exclusive from each other. So it's important to note on your notice whether it's one or the two of these things which are likely to be impacted. And then you want to simply round this off by stating that you hope that you can both work together to mitigate any impact of the event and that you're right again in due course to ascertain any effects. And that in a nutshell is all you have to do. And that will get you around the table to one, talk about it and start having the discussion about whether the event can be lessened or avoided altogether. And it's going to start establishing your entitlement down the line should the thing that you're notifying about come to fruition. Now I'm saying this all from the point of view of we're looking at things that may impact us. We're looking ahead or forecasting. There may well be situations where you can't forecast and an unexpected COVID-19 virus pops up and completely curtails the site as happened in 2020. In such an instance, there isn't really a looking ahead option, but your real obligation is to notify the event essentially as soon as you can. Now there are some contracts out there which have time bar clauses and it's in those situations where this notice becomes particularly important. Basically what the time bar clause is doing is saying if you haven't submitted a notice you, don't, you, lose, your intent, you lose your entitlement to an extension of time. You would need to read your subcontract to understand whether that applies in your particular case. But my view is whether you've got a time bar clause that you've, you've got to work to or not, just get your notice in. You're doing it to protect yourself and you're doing it for the best interest of the whole project. We'll come back to the presentation of your case and effectively your assessment of your lost time in a little bit. And what we'll talk about now is some of the practicalities around notifying, collating evidence of these events. So 
if you've got in-house access to somebody that can do a program and a detailed program with a critical path and cross-linked between activities, then you're in a really great place because that's when it starts becoming a little easier to record events. You're going to record them right into the program and you can demonstrate what the impact of it may be as and when it happens. If you don't have that ability, don't worry about it. You still need to collate evidence as to what's happening, what's impacting you, but do it in a fashion that you can simply and easily carry out yourself. The important thing is to start collating information. One of the common mantras in the quantity surveying realm is records, 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 and for fuck's sake, get more records. Programs can be put together at a later time if necessary. If you really need a program putting together, it can be done fairly simply on Excel by listing out your activities down the left-hand side, putting dates along the top, and highlighting boxes where you're carrying out activities in different colors. It really doesn't have to be complicated, but programs are one of the visual tools that everybody seems to have a good understanding of. And it is the picture tells us a thousand words approach. Even something that you've put together on Excel has got that visual impact. But without the records to put a program together, even a simple bar chart on Excel, you're really going to struggle. So the onus is on you here to go walk your site, see what's going on. And basically, take notes. Take notes, take photographs. And what I would do is walk around the sections that you're about to start work on, look at the condition that they're in, look at the progress that they have achieved so far, and record your view of whether they're on program, whether they're behind, and whether you're going to get those sections on time. You want to look at work that you're completing at the moment, and see whether there's anything impacting your ability to complete it properly. And if you're one of these trades that has multiple fixes or multiple visits per location, what I would encourage you to do as well is go back to the places where you've just finished. See that something is happening, as in the next events in the program, the next part of the flow, and record how that's going. And it's not that you want to be keeping tabs on everything, but if you're expecting a section of works to come back to you after three weeks and you're going back there after two weeks and there's two to three weeks worth of work still outstanding there, that's a prime situation where you're going to get delayed and without going back and visiting, you're not going to understand what that delay has been or how it was caused at a later time. What you also want to do is, alongside this, start noting whether this is an event that is just going to cause you delay in time, or whether it's actually going to start costing you money as well. And when I say costing you money, I'm meaning, really, whether you're going to be able to recover your costs. And what we're doing here is starting to split between relevant events and relevant matters. So the difference between the two is events are time-based and matters are cost or material-based. And the two things are exclusive to each other. So essentially, if you're awarded an extension of time, what that is doing is it's providing you relief from damages. It's purely there to protect you from having costs deducted for either liquidated or actual damages. The bit that's going to get you the costs awarded 
i.e. your prelims costs or your other works costs, your losses reimbursed, are the relevant matters. So there's various events which don't include a relevant matter alongside it. And these are things that, by and large, both the contractor and the employer can't help. So we're talking things like strikes, like a specified peril, like a flood, force majeure, exceptional weather, terrorism. And what the contract says in these instances basically is these things are nobody's fault. The employer hasn't set out to construct a job at a time when there's strikes. They haven't told the weather to do its thing, as we all know it will do in the good old United Kingdom all year round and rain us off. So the contract here is basically saying, it's not your fault, Mr. Subcontractor. It's not the contractor's fault. It's not the employer's fault. So nobody's going to profit from the situation. But we're also going to say nobody's going to get hurt by the situation either. So you can establish your entitlement to the extension of time and therefore prevent yourself from having costs deducted. But equally, you won't then recover costs. And then the things that are events that you can be paid for are, and these are things that are essentially the fault of the contractor. And when I say the contractor, it may well be that the client has caused the actual event, but that is then cascading down from the main contract through to your subcontract and then causing you to incur costs and delay. So these are things such as failure to give possession to either a section or a part of the site or access of the same or delays receiving instructions, instructions for opening up the works which were then found to be correct discrepancies in the contract documents and what we're basically talking of is either an act or an omission of the contractor which causes you to spend more money or causes you delay so this is an instance where once you've collated these bits of information you really have to get your contract out and have a look at the clauses some of them get amended some of them move the risk around slightly but for the next step in the process to actually ascertain and basically present your case, you need to refer to the bleh, you need to refer to the clause that you're going to present your claim under. And the best thing you can do is have those contemporary records from the time from the walkarounds that we've mentioned, and have your notes alongside the records saying this is a neutral event such as weather and this is a event caused by a default or a late instruction etc. Now what we're going to do next is write a simple case. So we're going to take the same template letter, we're going to refer to the date of the previous notice that we gave identifying the issue and saying that at the time we notified you of something which may have caused delay and you've now been able to ascertain the effects. And what we want to do really is keep it clear, keep it concise, try and make it short if you can, and make it factually based. We want to avoid any sort of waffling on about things which haven't really impacted the program. So if we've got little bits of events and delays, but they've turned out to be non-critical, 
just ignore them and stick to what is hurting you. And what we basically want to do is tell a small story for each event. I'm assuming there's more than one because there often are. And it's fine to notify or present your claim for all of these events in one place. We essentially want to refer to the records that we took at the time and to draw these together into a simple story, simple narrative, if you like, of the event. So we might have event number one, adverse weather. We had 10 days of snow in April. It's unheard of. The site was closed for a period of 10 days. We're requesting an extension of time for those clear 10 days when no work could be achieved. You want to identify the start date, the finish date, the various sections of work which might have been impacted. Enclose the relevant bits of evidence that you've got with your assessment. Move on and describe in similar fashion event number two. Access to area three of the work was due to be given to Sammy the subcontractor on the 21st of March, but the contractor did not give access until the 15th of April. Refer to your records. And again, if you've got something to append that substantiates when you could start the works, when you've got access, refer to it here and append it. And you want to do the same for event number three. And for absolute simplicity's sake, I would enclose a little table at the end of these narratives, making it absolutely clear event number one, period of time lost, and then note alongside the relevant event and the relevant matter, if the relevant matter applies. You then also want to note the section. So if you've got sectional completion, you want to note the sections that are affected by that delay. So you're listing out delay one, period of time, relevant event, relevant matter, sections of work impacted. And then the same for delays number two and number three. And that will give a simple and concise table. The contractor assessing it can pick it up and view it, understanding in a straightforward fashion the events that have caused the delays, what the impacts are, and it's going to make it really straightforward for them to assess. And hopefully that will result in you getting an extension of time. So the costs that we've mentioned are really a subject for another time because there are some rules around loss and expense which are quite hard and fast and around what you can include, how you need to demonstrate what it is. But at the same time, you may have a pragmatic QS working for the contractor who's quite willing to look at pro rata of prelims and perhaps a couple of star rate adjustments to cover your costs without a lot of fuss. And as I've said, the award of the time is a separate entity to the award of the cost. It is quite often said that if the time is awarded, the cost will follow. But just remember what we said around the neutral events, i.e. the weather or the force majeure and the events that have been caused by the contractor. And then what you really want to do is arrange a meeting get around the table and discuss and agree what the outcome is. So the key takeaways then in respect of uh, extensions of time and notices, 
the notice itself, the initial notice to establish your entitlement, it doesn't have to be a complex and complicated document. The idea is simple, it's supposed to be a heads up. It doesn't have to be complicated, so don't feel like it's too difficult or it can't be done. Understand how and where to issue your notice. Is it in writing? Is it in email? Does it have to be recorded delivery? Read the section of your contract to find it out. Record all events and matters which cause or may cause delay. If you have the ability to create a program, keep that program updated and show the effects of the delaying events on your program. And finally, record when changes and variations are carried out on site as they're a common ground for an extension of time and often one that can be overlooked. Then when it gets to presenting your claim, you want to keep to the facts. You want to keep it simple, explaining your case clearly and use and present all of your evidence and information that you've collated. And it's as simple as that, folks. So I hope you've got something really useful out of that. I really do think that correspondence and notices in the construction industry are shied away from for some reason. And they're sort of looked at with a bit of dread in the back of the mind. But they really don't have to be as complicated as they are made out to be at times. And if you're not the kind of person that wants to go on and write long war and peace documents, that's all the better. Keeping your notice and your letters, your emails simple really does help the person at the other end. You're not having to cut through reams of bullshit to get to what the actual problem is. And one thing that I would say is if you think that you should be issuing a notice, then do it. Because the time to do it is whilst it's a contemporary, a current issue, and whilst the facts are at your fingertips. And who knows, issuing that notice might change the course of a project for the better. Okay, well thanks everyone for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more. It's less than the price of your cup of coffee per day and you can cancel any time. We're also on all of your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again for listening. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome.